0: Hello and welcome to Not Even Mad, a show where we're acutely inquiring, obviously obstreperous and thoroughly thought-provoking, but we're not even mad. Today we speak of the Department of Energy's puppy play purloiner, January 6th criminal referrals, and a study of republicanism and deadliness. While we assert our propensity for oratorical intensity, we vow to be not even mad. So who are we this week? First, I present you with special guest host, Dan Savage. He's the host of the Savage Lovecast and co-screenwriter of the Jim Parsons film, Spoiler Alert. Dan, let's say you faked a charity. How would you improve on the Friends of Pets United, the actual George Santos fake charity in the news?
1: Well, I guess it would have to be sort of a pet adoption rescue agency, but for human puppy players.
0: <laughs> We're also joined once more by Jamie Kirch, a columnist for Tablet Magazine and author of the New York Times bestseller Secret City The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Jamie, do you have a preferred fake charity?
2: It's a tie between the Trump Foundation and George Costanza's Human
0: Fund. <laughs> I am Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, my own charity. Dan, why don't you take us to the big news out of Washington?
1: On Monday, the January 6th committee did something no Congress has ever done before. Referred a former president to the Department of Justice for criminal prosecution. I'll let you guess which former president we're talking about. One hint, not Jimmy Carter. There were four possible charges laid out on the referral, insurrection, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, making false statements, and conspiracy to defraud the United States. Liz Cheney had this to say at the hearing where the committee made its recommendations.
0: No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office.
1: Okay, we are talking here about Donald Trump and what Liz Cheney said could apply to the January 6th insurrection and so much else, that meeting with Putin in Helsinki, attacking Gold Star families, the act as Hollywood tape, If convicted, Donald J. Trump could face 40 years in prison. That's if he's even charged by the DOJ, as the Wall Street Journal helpfully reminded us, the referrals have no legal weight. So if charged, and then if tried, and then if Trump doesn't manage to run out the clock with appeals and motions, and if Trump doesn't get a favorable ruling from the Supreme Court, he's stacked, and if President Biden or President Harris or President Buttigieg or even President Kevin McCarthy, manages to resist calls to pardon Trump. And then if Trump is convicted, then Trump might face 40 years in prison. Maybe. When it comes to Trump and legal consequences, it's always if, 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 might, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe. And as Politico reported later in the day, the January 6th committee's big reveal hasn't even happened yet. So we're still waiting on the big reveal, which I guess means for people who are still capable of getting their hopes up about Donald Trump ever being held accountable for his crimes.
0: The best is yet to come.
1: All right, so Jamie, I'm really curious what you have to say about the latest January 6th committee hearings, the referrals.
2: I think the real importance of the committee was in the information that it provided, all the witness testimony, the investigation, the recounting of events. I think they did an invaluable service and I think it's very important. The criminal referral, uh, first of all, it has no, as you mentioned, it has no legal weight. And I worry uh, that, in general, it will ins- perhaps discredit the work of the committee. It will be seen as a, as a partisan move. Yes, there are two Republicans on this committee, but let's be honest, Liz Cheney and Adam Kissinger are basically Republicans in name only at this point. They're no longer going to be serving in Congress. Um, it's unfortunate because I, th- I think the committee had an opportunity to be more bipartisan if they had allowed on. Some of the Republicans who Kevin McCarthy wanted, and yes, they might have been disruptive, and they might not have gone along with the thing. But you know what? That's what a congressional committee is supposed to be. So I'm wait, just saying, wait, wait. It's going to- they
1: invited just- those. They invited those Republicans onto no, the no, committee, no, no. and they, Kevin McCarthy took a ref- demented
0: toys. Misfit Toys and went home.
2: I thought it was Pelosi refused to seat them, if I'm not mistaken.
0: So what happened was there was back and forth about who would be on the committee. And then McCarthy said, well, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks are going to be on the committee. Pelosi said unacceptable. And then McCarthy pulled all the picks. But go ahead, Dan.
1: I was just going to say the referrals. What bothers me about them is just getting my lefty hopes up that there may be some accountability someday. And the referrals annoy me for that reason. But to your point, Jamie, about this isn't the committee's role, I see the committee as trying to avoid the mistake Mueller made, where he laid out all the crimes and then didn't make a recommendation one way or another to Congress. And I get that it's unprecedented for for a former president or current candidate to be prosecuted. But this president is such an unprecedented calamity in every way that we kind of have to face up to you know, unprecedented moves to hold him accountable for the crimes he committed and possibly block him from ever walking back into the White House like Liz Cheney said.
0: And someone who's a purposeful malefactor like Trump is knows or at least understands with his lizard brain cunning that the unprecedented nature of what he does will be a tool if others are constrained by the fact that, well, we can't prosecute a president or, well, this is so unprecedented, we hesitate to do that. So I accept all of that the analogy to what Mueller did and not making that mistake isn't quite apt because Mueller would not have compelled the Congress to charge. There was a forcefulness behind any recommendations he could have made. But I co-signed Ben Wittes' description that the criminal referrals are a one-day story, effectively a set of op-eds by the committee sent to an audience that doesn't make decisions by reading external op-eds. The audience in his framing being the Justice Department. And by the the Justice Department, think about this, if we're saying, well, this might pressure the Justice Department to do something because it's so frustrating that they haven't. Is that a good thing? Is it a good thing that the Justice Department might not act but for public pressure as brought forth by political actors? Think about when Congress comes into the control of the Republicans in the next term. Would we want a Justice Department who was able to be pressured by the recommendation, say, that prosecution happened for Hunter Biden or whatever else kind of prosecution you can think of, Greg Sargent says um, that the committee is engaged in public communication. And he writes, Washington Post, Greg Sargent, when people deride hearings as political theater, that's automatically understood as a showboating waste of time. But successful hearings, even theatrical ones, are also acts of communications with the people. In this case, that's especially important. And this committee was a big show. And when the show ends, you have to have... A big number, right? You have to have the wedding. You have to have the grand gesture. You have to have someone running through the airport. It's sort of defined by the genre. If I was on the committee, I'd make the referrals. If I was in the Department of Justice, I'd resent the referrals, as I am a podcaster who's neither of those things. I do say they don't really matter. And for all the hand-wringing I could do, might they make the process seem more political? It was so political to begin with.
2: I'm not fully convinced yet that what he did was illegal. I think it was reprehensible. I think it should disqualify him from any public office. Uh, I think it was. But you're terrible against any move
1: to actually disqualify him.
2: Um, well, they had an opportunity to impeach him afterwards, and the Democrats, in large degree, screwed that up. Um, they could have gotten more. Right, Republican. but you understand
0: that that's totally not a. That's uh, referendum on the legality, right? Right, that's an impeachment a totally is a
2: political, political yeah. right? And so I don't. Right. I'm not convinced that the speech that he gave was an incitement to violence. I don't think it was, frankly. You know, so I'm not sure what he did was criminal. I'm not sure, you know, calling up Raffensburger in Georgia and demanding that he find, you know, however many votes. Again, reprehensible, totally disqualified. Anyone who supports the man, any any re- Republican who is joining his campaign, it's it's reprehensible. But again, not illegal, right? So I'm not sure that, that this is criminally prosecutable behavior. And it seems like with a lot of times with Donald Trump, you know, the left lost. And instead of trying to beat the guy, you know, with these with these um, means, you know, short of democracy, right? That's basically what Russia wait, wait, was. Wait, wait, we
1: beat Trump with 8 million votes at the ballot box. Right, right. And if anybody screwed up Trump's impeachment, particularly the second one, it was Mitch McConnell... I think the Democrats screwed up by not returning articles of impeachment within a day after the January 6th. They dragged it on for weeks. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Political malpractice. But the person who's most responsible for Donald Trump not being convicted is Mitch McConnell, who stood up and gave a very pretty speech about how this was Donald Trump's doing, that he was morally responsible for the crime that had been committed for a, for the first time ever in the history of this country not having a peaceful transfer of power that was Trump and then he voted not to convict him and didn't try to bring 13 more republican senators along and, this is one them, of those things where people blame dems you know want to give more of the blame to dems and, and not just you know people who are center right like you Jamie a lot of dems want to put more blame on the dems you want to hold somebody accountable for Donald Trump not having been convicted that second time Mitch fucking
0: McConnell. No, it's ultimately – And McConnell, by the way, wasn't – if we look back at it, he wasn't actually acting in his own self-interest, it turns out, right? He reaped the whirlwind of not putting a stake through the heart of Trumpism and lost the Senate as a result. Absolutely.
2: Um, But again, I'm not sure that this is criminally prosecutable behavior.
0: Jamie, I think that I I agree with you, or I do think there's a fair amount of ambiguity on the incitement charge, but on the conspiracy to make a false statement, I mean, I think they have him dead to rights on that and on the obstruction of an official proceeding, which, you know, that was enacted after Sarbanes-Oxley, but he certainly did conspire or engage in the obstruction of an official proceeding.
1: And one of the things we know now is that he wanted...
2: To go to the Capitol with that mob and march in there at the head of that mob. If his Secret Service detail didn't turn the car around and they actually brought him up there, I can assure you that he would have taken one look at all that violence and chaos and would have demanded he go right back to the White House. That's not intended as a defense of him. I'm I'm not defending him. I'm just saying that the guy is a is a coward, and there's no way he would have been at the he, he would have been at the at the front of that mob fighting I think off Capitol Police You keep Police saying officers.
1: you're not sure if what he did was. He can be criminally
2: prosecuted; would be
1: convicted. Well, there's one way we can find out, which is to prosecute him and see if he gets acquitted.
2: It's not that I don't know if it's crim- if It's it's also I'm really worried about the precedent of doing this. I think it's it's something that we need to think really long and hard about, and and it's also something that oh I God. I really think you would need a large like more than a majority. You would need a large majority of the country to be behind it. And What's which the precedent? It, it we further that we're setting by country. not doing it. That's my
1: concern. We have a What's precedent president... for that
2: with Richard Nixon, you know. And I, I think what Ford did was was right in that situation. I think you disagree with me, um, but we do have we do have a precedent for that. And I think the country was actually spared um, a lot of, of wrenching problems and further divisions by allowing <laughs> Richard Nixon to go off. Although, of course, the differences between Richard Nixon and Donald Trump is that. Richard Nixon was never going to run for president again, right? Uh, and he and he and he went into retirement and and he, and he wrote books and traveled the world. Uh, Richard wasn't... Nixon is a callback to those
1: days when Republicans could feel shame. Also true. We got Trump because we didn't prosecute Nixon, and Trump blew past norms that were just norms, not laws. And like Nixon said, it wasn't a crime if the president did it, which is and- what. Trump is all about, and what Trumpism is all about, and why we need to prosecute this.
2: And maybe- say it, say it. Come on, just say it. Columns,
0: call call Piece in. of
1: shit. <laughs> Piece of shit. Can I and swear maybe the- on a podcast? Is this like NPR?
0: Yeah. No, it's good. And maybe the line from Nixon to Trump—it's written on the latimus dorsi of uh, Roger Stone.
1: Okay, we're going to leave Republicans I want to murder with my bare hands and talk instead about Republicans who may be doing themselves in. Back after this.
2: back with Not Even Mad. Is conservatism bad for your health? That is the rough conclusion of two new studies summarized this week in the Washington Post. Analyzing COVID mortality rates across all 435 congressional districts, congressional member voting records on coronavirus relief bills, as well as political party control of state legislatures and governor's offices. Researchers at Harvard's School of Public Health found that the more conservative a region, the higher was its age-adjusted COVID mortality rate, and that's after taking racial, educational, and income differences of each district's constituents into account. A second study by political scientists at the University of Washington purports to show how the policies of state governments impacted adult mortality rates from 1999 to 2019. According to the study, had every state enacted liberal policies on the environment, economy, gun control, criminal justice, health care, welfare, labor, and tobacco, 170,000 lives would have been saved in 2019 alone. By contrast, had every state implemented conservative policies on these issues, 217,000 more people would have died, which the study helpfully adds is the equivalent of a 600-passenger airplane crashing every day of the year. The only conservative policy position that was found to prolong life expectancy was the criminalization of marijuana, the reason being that higher marijuana use tracks with higher suicide rates and alcohol-induced mortality. Now, when I first read this post story summarizing these two studies, they sounded a little too good to be true, as if they had been concocted by Vox reporters in the MSNBC green room. And upon further examination, it does appear that the researchers behind both studies are committed left-wing activists who have a penchant for straying beyond their areas of professional expertise. Nancy Krieger, the social epidemiologist behind the Harvard study, authored a paper last month entitled Minority Rule, a Lethal Threat to the People's Health, Democracy, and Our Planet which argues that recent Supreme Court rulings on climate change, gun control, and abortion rights will have, quote, grave consequences for the health of people and life on Earth. In the summer of 2020, she co-wrote an op-ed stating that social distancing rules did not apply to racial justice protests, presumably because airborne COVID molecules only infect right-wingers. Also, neither report discusses fentanyl, a leading cause of death among Americans and the subject of a major investigation by the Post just last weekend. Nor do they discuss the impact that, say, democratic policies on the southern border might have on the importation of fentanyl into the United States. So, Dan, am I right to treat these studies with skepticism, or am I just denying the reality that the modern GOP is a death cult?
1: (laughs) Well, I think you're right to treat every study with skepticism. I just think the conclusions you're drawing particularly about that one researcher at Harvard seem a little specious. Everyone in academia, researchers are members of the fact-based community. And the people who think climate change is a Chinese hoax and evolution is a lie, and Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, is onto something, aren't attracted to the sciences generally. And I don't think it's a leap to say that the Supreme Court is anti-democratic. The Senate is anti-democratic. That elections where the person who loses the popular vote becomes the president is anti-democratic. And the end result of this anti-democratic Rube Goldberg contraption that is our so-called democracy are Supreme Court decisions on guns and climate that are going to get a lot of individuals killed in the case of guns and could get the planet and everybody on it killed in the case of the climate.
0: The title of this story in the Washington Post is Can Politics Kill You? Research says the answer increasingly is yes. But we've always known that politics can kill you. They killed a bunch of people in Peru. They killed McKinley and later Leon Trollgosh. They killed Ashley Babbitt. But they kill people all the time. That's why politics are important. The choices that politicians and the people who vote for politicians make. But that said, I don't think that these two studies really prove their point. One tell is that If true... If there was an authoritative study that showed that all of these policies so strongly correlate to greater death, don't you think more outlets than just one or two stories, like I read one in the Washington Post and it got picked up in one other outlet, don't you think more people would be paying attention? I do think that a lot of researchers and academia are only going to find these particular findings. But that said, you know, Jonathan Metzl of Vanderbilt, he's written really authoritatively about how lax gun law absolutely correlate to higher gun deaths, mostly by suicide, not by murder. Climate policy absolutely has an effect on the health and life and death of Americans. But what Republicans, what conservatives would say is that the greatest thing that their agenda could do is to bring prosperity to people. And it is true. More richness means longer life and better life. Wait,
1: Mike, I don't think Republican policies result in broad-based economic they said
2: prosperity. They believe that they, he said they
0: believe what, that they do. What whether, they, or not, right. whether or what not you agree say. with them
2: is a separate issue. Right. right. So
0: what Pat Toomey, if he were here, who's maybe one of the more uh, moderate of the Republicans, he's just an anti-regulation have better conditions for businesses. And he would point to, well, because of that, I've increased wealth by however much I've increased it. And an increase in wealth and an increase in GDP absolutely correlates to people's ability to buy medical procedures or live healthier lives or whatever. I mean, China got richer and China Mm -hmm. got healthier and Chinese people live longer as a result. So it's hard to pick that up in a study as much as it is Uh, to pick up the effect of gun homicides. Maybe it's just easier to study the things that are positively killing people in uh, acutely, as opposed to the general atmosphere that allows for prosperity and long lives.
1: Speaking of gun homicides or gun deaths, now the leading cause of death for children under the age of 18, gun violence in this country. And, you know, maybe there hasn't been a lot of chatter about these studies, Mike, because it's a, a little bit dog bites man water is wet i looked at the headline and i was like yeah denying people health care states that haven't uh, enacted obamacare uh, sometimes over the will of the voters of republican controlled state legislatures yeah more people who don't have access to health care are going to die than are going to die in states where people do have greater access to health care not universal anywhere in this country like we need but yeah, 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 conservative policies, uh, absolutely. guns, and, it's, it's and you can't see the doctor the and get an abortion. You haven't
0: adopted it. Yeah. there
2: are also there are also other values than just say life. There's the quality of life, or there's say freedom, right? Balancing you have to balance these values against one another, and to look at say the conservative position on guns, which isn't necessarily one I share, but I'll voice it today, is that conservatives will probably acknowledge that yes, there's a lot of gun violence in this country and gun death of this country, but it is a consequence. Of a freedom that we want to have just the freedom to have guns it's they would they would say it's the same thing with the first amendment the second amendment it's the freedom of speech are there negative consequences to freedom of speech absolutely you have to endure a lot of crazy offensive hateful nonsense if you log onto twitter right or if you there's there's, there's the, the the neo-nazis who want to march in the public square that is a negative externality of free speech they They would argue, and again, this isn't a comparison that I would make, but they would argue that, yeah, 10,000 excess gun deaths a year, that's the price we're willing to pay for the freedom to bear arms. Uh, I I do disagree
1: with it, and I think you set up a false choice, which is guns or no guns. The freedom to own guns or no freedom to own any guns at all. When people are calling for regulations, uh, licensing, insurance, the imposition on that right of certain responsibilities, yeah, there's a... Twitter's a free-for-all. Free speech, um, it's a pretty broadly enjoyed right. Libel can get you in trouble. Defamation can get you in trouble. You can't just say, you know, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater and you can't accuse somebody in print despite the complete freedom of the press of having committed a crime without doing your due diligence because you'll end up paying out and paying out a large sum and being punished for exercising your free speech. And so, yeah, we have a lot of guns, we shouldn't have as many guns as we do. And we should have a higher bar for gun ownership than we do. And, and you know, back when abortion was a constitutionally protected right, Republicans were all over imposing all sorts of limitations on abortion, despite it being identified for 50 years as a constitutionally protected right that women enjoyed they were fine with regulating that constitutional right. They're fine with regulating speech to a certain extent. It's only guns where any idiot can have a gun, carry it in public, should be able to buy an AR-15. This week we've been treated to Marjorie Taylor Greene saying she's gonna protect kids from dildos at Target. At the same time, the same week, where gun deaths became the leading cause of death for people under the age of 18 in this country. One of the I things remember that, the
0: framing used to be guns or butter, now it's guns or dildo. One I of think, the things I that, I that, that's <laughs> probably, that perplexed me so, about this, no, I mean, look, if you wanted, if, your only,
2: if your ultimate goal was to preserve human life, then it seems to me that you would take an extremely right-wing position on criminal justice issues, right? You would lock up every criminal forever, so that there's no threat at all that they would ever kill somebody, right? If well, that's why goal, I, I, ju- I just so, said I'm
1: pro. I, I just said I'm not against gun ownership. I'm just no, 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 regulating I'm, is, it, and now separate. you're saying I'm like no, 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 an no, no, extremist no, no. on human life. i well, sorry. I'm this is separate.
2: Not. This is separate from your, the point you just made. Okay, I, I'm just. I'm. I was perplexed that it said that liberal views, liberal policies on criminal justice, somehow you know led to greater life expectancy. I mean, again, if you wanted to preserve human life, then you would put every guy who jumped a turnstile on the subway, everyone who committed a violent crime, everyone who was a robber, because we know that those sorts of crimes do lead to often often cases do lead to violent crimes. There'd be no forgiveness. There'd be no three strikes. It'd be one strike. You're in jail for the rest of your life because we know be that North in you know Korea. authoritarian. To, yeah, exactly. In North Korea you know, the, no, there's no one being murdered on the streets in North Korea, right? The government is murdering people left and right. But we know that there's very little crime, right? In these in these extremely authoritarian police states. So I'm, I'm, I'm you know, again, you can take these policies to their logical extreme, right? If you're only, if your most important goal is, is what these studies are claiming, right? Which is, you know, preserving human life, then yeah, then you would like outlaw all sorts of activities, right? You'd ban smoking, you'd ban fatty mm-hmm. foods, you'd do all sorts of things that, I think Americans reasonably don't want to do because we don't want to live in a police state.
0: Yeah, prohibition falls into that category. Prohibition, yeah, all sorts of things. Um I think that this. there were two studies we're talking about. The Harvard one talks about how Republicanism, uh, as measured by living in states with the trifecta of both houses of the legislature and the governor, or having a Republican senator, if you live in those congressional districts, you were more likely to die of COVID. However, there are so many confounding variables, and I'll just give you one that the study doesn't account for. Here are the states with the highest rate of COVID deaths, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Arizona, West Virginia, Alabama, Arkansas, New Mexico, Tennessee, Michigan. Here are the states with the highest rates of obesity, Mississippi, West Virginia, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Michigan, Louisiana, South Carolina. I think it's an overlap of nine of the top 12, and there's not too many big outliers. So what's going on there? Obesity is a real epidemic. Does it skew Republican? Does it skew Democrat? Why are people obese? I know that uh, one explanation that's easy to reach for is something to do with um, advocating for public health, but I don't think that's it. I think Orwell had it right when he talked about the misery of people's lives and how people reach for a sweet cup of tea to just sort of keep the uh, daily indignities at bay. There's a lot of public health questions in America that don't map on our partisan leanings. Wait, 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 and, Mike.
1: Now do poverty. Yeah. Now rattle off the states with the highest poverty rates, and you're probably going to get the same list.
0: Yeah, they're pretty close. I mean, they're, they're very close. But I would also say that there's a correlation among all of them, right? It's about how miserable people's lives are and which states deliver more of a chance to escape that immiseration. I mean, I happen to be in New York, but I'd also choose to be a Northeasterner or a New Yorker. But then if I was living in California, I might very much question if I could do better than that state. Uh, My point, though, with the study is the confounding variables that weren't taken into account might not just be, you know, little um, inklings of disquiet, but might actually have the biggest explanation for what's going on here.
1: So you would you would add ob- obesity and its attendant health problems and sometimes mortality rates to the suicides of despair? It's just people reaching for cupcakes who should be reaching for kale.
0: It correlates both ways, and I don't want to be fat phobic, but I do think being obese actually makes you less happy, and being less happy probably makes you obese. And it's not entirely society uh, imposing its anti-fatness well, upon the obese. A
1: lot of it is sedentary lifestyles. It's car culture. It's you know one of the things people benefit from living in a place like New York City is the sort of ambient exercise they get walking or taking the subway. Uh, being
0: able to get around on a bicycle. Hopefully evening out the higher rates of asthma. Though, and food
1: deserts, access to good food um, is more difficult in Mississippi uh, than it is in you know, California or Washington state. And that has to do with poverty rates, but also choices that are being made by the Republican governors and legislatures who run places
0: like Mississippi. And don't, thank God, run places like Washington state where I live. Huh. You think the prevalence of supermarkets in a state is mostly dictated by political leadership?
1: I'd have to think about that. But for a point for just for the sake of argument right now, I'm going to say, yeah, Jamie. Yeah, that's what I think.
2: Well, Also, just like (laughs) what has happened in Democrat run cities over the past three years across the country? They've been they've become anarchic. Oh. Uh, the, the crime is out of control. The homelessness is out of control. We know this. I mean, you you live in one, Dan, or you live outside of one.
1: I know, um, and I walked to so, work today okay, without well, being shot, murdered, robbed, or offered fentanyl right. through downtown Seattle. Was that the first time in like three years? No, I walked to that? work all the time <laughs> and chopped the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, whatever it was called. That was literally my office was on the corner where that... Right. We're, so you know, this, it was in the I, middle what, of the autonomous zone, these and studies, I went to work every day, and I right. am still not dead.
2: Sure. So if I just presented sort of the Republican caricature of like the Democrat-run city becoming a hellhole, these studies almost seem like they were written in response by Democratic activists to be like, ha, well, you think we're ruining the cities. You guys are screwing up the states and congressional districts that you run. And it oh. seems just as kind of, you know... I think, you know, cartoonish a, a characterization, a very kind of monocausal explanation for things like vote for Republicans, you're going to die. That's why <laughs> I said, I mean, it, it, it just seems a little simplistic.
1: I, I will concede, though, that Dems are screwing up cities by not building enough housing. When you look around at, at homelessness. Or um, not
2: prosecuting crimes and all sorts of, you know, perhaps not prosecuting crimes. No,
0: no, no. Guys, it's the supermarket policy we put our finger on it it's 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 how welcoming you are i'm
1: sorry mike food deserts are a real thing and access to uh food and food policies that are shaped by state and federal governments that make cheap carbohydrates processed foods uh more widely available and cheaper than decent good food and people not having because they're in poverty the time to prepare decent food for themselves or get decent oh. food for their families because they're working three jobs. Those are those have real impacts on childhood obesity and, and adults' obesity rates. And it's not right, just about like have a Republican it's governor and he's city- going to burn down your grocery store.
0: No, I know. But it's not the city council or the mayor's policy choices that are dictating that reality, which I agree with. Speaking of fast food, I
2: think it's time we wrap this up and talk about one of my favorite McDonald's characters, Sam Brinton, the Sam Burglar. Back in a moment.
0: And we're back with Not Even Mad. Sam Brinton, a non-binary LGBTQ activist and outspoken opponent of conversion therapy, was a high-profile, if not high-ranking official with the Department of Energy. Was. Brinton's identity, lifestyle, public embrace of kink was constant fodder for critics of LGBTQ issues and the Biden administration. And this was true even before the events of last month. They were spending a lot of fuel on the former deputy assistant secretary for spent fuel and waste disposition. In November, Brinton was charged with stealing a passenger's suitcase from the carousel at the Minneapolis airport. This week, Brinton was in a Nevada courtroom after they allegedly stole a woman's suitcase from a Las Vegas airport. Vanessa Murphy of 8 News Now Las Vegas was, not surprisingly, unable to get Brinton or their lawyer to engage in an act of self-incrimination on the way into the courtroom. Do you care
1: to make a comment? Not Did you do this, though? Did you steal the luggage?
0: We have no comment at this time.
1: There was an active warrant for Britain for more than five days after Metro Police say Britain was caught on camera stealing luggage for a second time. Britain was a deputy assistant secretary at the Department of Energy. Earlier this week, the department confirmed they're no longer an employee there, though.
0: Indeed, no longer an employee there, though. Brinton claimed to be the first openly gender-fluid person in federal government. I don't think that could possibly be true, unless by openly you mean engaged in prominent social media declarations of being non-binary and engaging in kink play and puppy play. To me, this case is interesting, because there is certainly a perniciousness to forcing people into the closet, and there was a time which Jamie ably chronicled in his book where every gay person in government was called a pervert i mean those were new york times headlines inquiry by senate on perverts and perverts called the government peril it's all appalling but is considering brinton's loud and proud embrace not just of they them pronouns and wearing dresses and makeup but of puppy play that different we shouldn't kink shame that's true But does that mean any impulse to say, you know, tone it down when it comes to public expressions of sexual proclivities? Is that kink shaming necessarily? Sam Brinton was transgressive in their identity, but then they transgressed in their legal behavior. Is it fair to always or necessarily, again, to connect those two? Jamie, what say you? So
2: this really angered me, this case, because Sam Brinton was held up by LGBT organizations and by the mainstream media as being basically you know a representative of our community you know Dan and my community and it just struck me as strange because it, it it wouldn't be asking Sam Brinton to have gone in the closet to say you know what it might not be appropriate for you to wear a red strapless evening gown and high heels and dark, dark red lipstick to work at the Department of Energy uh, that's not forcing someone into the closet there are plenty the vast majority of gay people, you know, put on their shoes and their suits and their blouses and they go to work like everybody else. And that's what a lot of gay people fought and died for in this country, was, was to do just that. This guy was an exhibitionist. Uh, he was a freak, let's just be honest, and he was an, attention, uh, an attention-starved person. Um, his story about conversion therapy, about being this pitiful victim of conversion therapy, appears not to have been true. I mean, he was challenged on this by Wayne Bezin, a gay rights activist and the founder of an organization called Truth Wins Out. It's the leading anti-conversion therapy organization in the country. And when Sam Brinton started retailing his story about being, you know, tortured by a conversion therapist at a at an office in a strip mall in Florida, you know, Wayne asked him, could you tell me the location? Could you tell me the name of the conversion therapist? We'd love to publicize this and use it and go after the guy. And Brinton never came through with an answer. And Wayne wrote about this. He wrote an article for LGBTQ Nation where he described, you know, going to the leaders of some gay rights groups and saying there's, some, there's something off about this guy. There's some red flags here. His story does not check out. And yet they still promoted him. Uh, so I'm really upset about this. I'm really angry when I see the far right homophobes, you know, using this story to attack and smear all gay people, which is totally wrong. But it's kind of like we set them up for it. We gave it to them on a the silver platter. And it's and it's inexcusable, and it should have been clearer. I mean, there are a lot of people in positions of authority in the gay world, I'm afraid to say, who I really think have egg on their faces here.
1: I wish Wayne Besson had come forward with that story earlier. Like, Wayne waited until very recently to write that yes. story. After the um,
2: allegations came out, yeah.
1: After the allegations came out. Somebody's got to go first. And, you know, of Sam Britton's story of his uh, there conversion therapy experience, it was almost like Jussie Smollett's story. It sounded too bad to be true. Uh, And, you know, depending on your perspective, if you think a terrible story is a great narrative to advance queer rights, too good to be true. Um, I know that Joe Jervis, who is behind the Joe My God uh, blog, which is still a really prominent, huge gay blog, had a policy, has a policy, not to report on a gay bashing if there isn't an eyewitness because there's been so many false reports. You know, I think Jesse Smollett should have had the book thrown at him, and I think somebody who makes a false report of a hate crime should be brought up on hate crime charges themselves. Because the logic of a hate crime is that you know you burn the cross on the front lawn of the African American family on one side of the street, the African American family down the block or on the other side of the street is terrorized too. That's what hate crime additional penalties are for. They don't make it extra illegal to beat up one gay guy. They recognize that when you beat somebody up or target somebody because of their faith or their sexual orientation or their race, that there are other victims who are also harmed in the commission of that crime. I feel like the same thing kind of applies here to Britain's exaggerated story of really the crime of being subjected to conversion therapy. He made this up or they got, they made it up for attention. The non-binary. It's a real thing. non-binary people are the kindest, warmest, bravest, most wonderful human beings I've ever <laughs> known in my life. That said it's really hard to draw a line here because we live in a world now where we function not just professionally but also personally online. So, someone who, you know, is non-binary, maybe there were more work appropriate outfits that Sam Britton could have been wearing to the Department of Energy. You know, the picture that they posted of them in heels the first day in the office, those aren't shoes that anybody wears who isn't laying on their back in a bed. I don't understand how Who would wear that to work unless it was somebody seeking attention? There's one other aspect of this story I really wanted to touch on, which I think Jamie will appreciate the damn fine police work here. There were two bags stolen at two different airports. There were two seemingly full scale investigations. I'm not like carrying water for Sam here and suggesting that this should have been, they should have gotten away with it or there shouldn't have been a police response. But according to The Atlantic, the murder clearance rate has gone from 90% in the 50s to 50% today. But the bag, you know, the clearance rate for crimes when it comes to bag stealing by non pinary Department of Energy officials is 100%. And you read these stories, and it's almost comical, the amount of police work and shoe leather that went into tracking down who stole that bag in Las Vegas, when you can't even get a cop to come to your house when your car gets stolen in San Francisco.
0: I don't know. I think I applaud 100% closed case rate when it comes to stealing cases that are closed. Uh, There's a lot of security cameras in a lot of airports, and municipalities want their travelers to know, don't worry, if someone rips you off, we have every way of finding the person. So that doesn't bother me. I do have the question, though, because listeners are going to want to hear from me, not you two guys on this if you're in charge of hiring at the uh, Department of Spent Fuel and Waste Management and you have two candidates and one is non-binary and does instruction videos on they then pronouns and the other doesn't, it would, we could both agree, be really, really wrong to discriminate and not hire the one who engages in that sort of instruction or wears makeup to work or a dress, fine. But what about when it comes to you know, being public about their fetishes, being public about puppy play, this whole raft of and we didn't know the conversion therapy stories were probably false. But this whole raft of attendant, sorry to use the pun, baggage attached to this government employee, is it just flat out wrong and flat out discriminatory from the age of talking about perverts in government? to say I, I very much wonder if this person is the right hire in this sensitive position
1: I was trying I was began to make the point that we live so much of our lives online now we date online we go to you know parties that then end up being documented trying to maintain perfect separation between your private life even your private consensual sexual, conduct
2: the community that you might
1: exist in where you you conduct yourself
2: don't don't you have something to disclose
1: (laughs) yeah i've been to a sex party that sam was at i was more of a chaperone at this sex party but i am the kind of gay guy who goes to sex parties Wait, so that would explain
2: why i lost my cell phone at that party
1: (laughs) (laughs) i I knew where your cell phone was at all times it was uh (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I won't say where it ended up. (laughs) Speaking of spec, we live in a a world where like we date. Everything is online. Everything is documented. So I do think that, you know, kink education is important um, because people who don't know what they're doing kink wise uh, can get hurt. Sam was not wearing puppy masks at the Department of Energy. He wasn't conducting kink classes at the Department of Energy. Th- that seems to be something he was doing at kink and fetish events
2: long before uh, he went to work at, in the federal government. And how about this argument, though, Dan? And that a public servant, someone who's a de- who's a de- deputy assistant secretary, who's being trotted out, you know, on the stage of the Trevor Project, which is a an organization for a young. LGBT people, it's a suicide prevention hotline for LGBT people. Perhaps someone in that position, you know, we, it, they should Shouldn't not be, be perhaps, kinky? publicly talking about their sexual kinks, right? Someone who's supposed to be a role model for young people. Um, it's fine that they're openly gay, of course, you want openly gay role models. But there are some things that, you know, children and young people don't necessarily need to be exposed to. I think we can all agree about that, right? Well, so there are young you gay want... people and there are young gay kinky people too. It's whatever you're into sexually. You know, say you're a guy who's into just purely vanilla gay sex or whatever. That You don't need to be talking about that if you're a public official. Be- because it that's the default a setting. Your...
1: It's just like you don't need to be talking about being straight. That's why we have to identify ourselves as gay. Or straight. the people default shouldn't... setting is straight. And we, that straight, assumption be made.
2: Straight government employees shouldn't be, ta- you know, uh, high profile public employees perhaps also shouldn't be talking about their sexual lives in public. I don't want the Secretary of State going off in his spare time talking about whatever sexual where stuff Where do you, where do you draw the
1: line, though? Where is, you know, having a wedding ring on? Where is kissing your spouse? Where is Joe kissing Jill Biden? Like, there's things we can infer about right. them and, 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 infer. and their sexual and infer, connection. And
2: inference is enough. We don't need it. We don't need our do government think, officials as... A, I'll
0: try to articulate a principle. Yeah. If the Undersecretary of Treasury were to talk about his being a swinger, I think that it would... Cause a lot of questions and maybe some pause putting faith in the government. So maybe there is some sort of criteria where you could say, if this would be troubling to a vast majority of Americans, we could not talk about it. Then there'd be no openly gay
1: people. If that was the standard and it was the standard we all respected all along, then gay people wouldn't have started coming out as gay en masse 50, 60 years ago. And I would challenge but you, Jamie, a lot like, of one people. of the things you write about so brilliantly in in Secret City is the trap that gay people were in. We were told we were a security risk, so we must be fired. And we were a security risk because we could be fired for being gay. Are we going to have that same regimen for heterosexual swingers? Are we going to have that same, you know, this becomes a security risk because, you know, if you put a puppy mask on in public or, God forbid, you're at a play party and uh, somebody takes a picture of you without your knowledge, and it winds up on the internet and tagged back to you, and you're outed publicly as a kingster or a swinger. It, you can be fired for that. Well, then that becomes something that could be leveraged against you by a foreign power. I don't think the
2: issue with Sam Brinton was, the, was that he could be blackmailed for any of this. <laughs> Clearly, he was very open about this. Right. Stuff, that's right? why so he so couldn't was, be blackmailed. Right. For. So, but the issue, right? So the issue with him was not that he was a blackmail threat. The issue with him is that he's a kleptomaniac, and he's got some other mental issues going on, which I think perhaps his dress and his uh, desire to be such a sexual ex- exhibitionist might have been an indication of that. That's what that's
1: attention-seeking about. behavior, impulse yeah. control, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, like yeah. right, can, and maybe that's that's, that's the problem. That's the problem. It's not that he's a security threat.
1: Okay, so then then what do we what what's going to be the regimen here, like? Most of our lives are lived online and our private lives are permeable in a way that they didn't used to be because of technology. And I want to live in a world where people are pretty much free to conduct their private lives in this sort of private, public, I don't know what to, even mm. to call it. Like there is yeah. no perfectly private right. life anymore. We all exist in this, you know, whatever it is, miasma of Nothing is private and everything is potentially public at any moment because of the ubiquity of, of cell phones and how much of our, you know, we, you don't get to hit on people at work or school or on the bus anymore. You're supposed to take that to Tinder and you're supposed to take that to Grindr and you're supposed to do that online. But then you leave this digital trail that could out you, not just as somebody who's interested in straight or gay vanilla sex, but somebody who has really out there sexual interests. And if... I'd rather people could, you know, be open about that in certain areas of their lives and at certain times and keep their mouth shut about it at PTA meetings or at mm. the DOE.
0: There is a norm of decorum, a norm of prudence that if interpreted one way is just pushing people back in the closet. But I think it comes at a cost when we totally jettison those norms. And I'm thinking of, there are certain kinks, uh, I mentioned swingers, you know, um, infantilism or diaper play, The if you're a man who is advertising that you're into sadism, um, BDSM, it would, I think, properly cause them consternation and worry. And I think that preserving that norm to some degree is something we should engage in. No. No? No. I, I, I think Nothing? the
1: norm we want to establish is knowing where and when is an appropriate venue for whatever. Uh, And some people are kinky. And also, we should note, degree from MIT, not faked credentials, and unlike a certain Republican who just got elected to Congress, and um, worked for the Trump administration first. So this non-binary expert nuclear whatever, (laughs) he wasn't brought in by the Biden administration to virtue signal around non-binary folks being employable by the federal government he was hired by the trump administration
0: and and his charity to animals was genuine although it comes with an asterisk
1: I, it, mike the, the the thing you advance like just places us on a slippery slope like
0: anybody uh,
1: non it, there, there was a stu- there was a slope in both directions there was a study no out prudence? of the uk that looked at what's called um Oh my God. What is it called? Paraphilias, Mm non-normative sexual desires. And they wanted to measure the prevalence of non-normative sexual desires in the population. And what they found was well over 50% of people had at least one non-normative sexual desire, which meant paraphilias aren't non-normative, they're normative. And who gets to decide what is uh, something that disqualifies you from public service sexually and something that isn't? And as a gay man, and I think Jamie would agree as gay men, that's not something I want to empower the average person to do because we would fall on the outside of that 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, with the work yes. of the people trying to stigmatize out queer people now as groomers, we might fall on the outside of that five years from now, yeah, or 10 I'd... years from now.
0: you That's what gives me pause. And I mean that, I mean that I don't know where the line is, but I do think, and you even said, where's the line? But I think that that implies there is a line. It seems like your answer is, we don't know where the line is, therefore there should be no line.
1: I think the line is around compartmentalization and what's appropriate. I I looked at the pictures of Sam at the DOE and I was just like, (laughs) that's not what any of the femme people I know wear to professional gigs. Like if you wore that to court, I don't know that you'd be taken seriously as a lawyer, but and, all right, and what whatever. He, and
2: isn't that indicate a problem where we sort of are in perhaps yeah, no sections of the LG? Yeah. And it's like no one could have just popped up and said, you know what? That's not appropriate. Because if they if they did, they would have been condemned as a bigot and a fascist and a Trumper. And, you know, you hate non-binary people. You hate trans femme people. All these things. And you're judging that's what That's shaming. what would have happened. I got in trouble 30
1: years ago, you know, at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic for telling gay men, you know what? You can suck too many dicks. You can have too many sex partners. And I said that again during monkeypox, like dial it back and it's possible to have too much sex, which is not something gay men wanted to hear 30 years ago or six months ago, but sometimes we got to hear it. And I think you're right, Jamie, that sometimes somebody's got to step in and say, that's not appropriate work attire. And who knows, maybe if Sam had ever hit some sort of boundary or pushback ever, yes. they wouldn't have spun out of control and engaged in this negative attention-seeking well, you know behavior, what? It, it, stealing it be bags at night- airports. Right.
2: Allegedly. And like if, 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 these, if these crimes hadn't been reported or discovered, I bet he would have been on stage at the White House on the South Lawn last week when they were signing the RFMA. He probably would have been up there with, you know, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, right, as the first openly non-binary government official, he would have been up there on the stage. And and, and then what would have happened to say the week after that, these uh, these, these uh, re- revelations came out about him stealing luggage well, and whatnot.
1: Well, thank God for these damn fine police departments at our <laughs> nation's airports
0: then. So our listeners cannot see us, but I would like to disclose we're all wearing very tasteful Versace <laughs> evening gowns. Keep that in mind as we segue to the goat grinders, those things in life that just grind your gears, get your goats, make you say, Dan Savage, what is your goat grinder? Uh,
1: My goat is, I'm a fan of this show. I've been listening since day one. My goat is ground a little bit by that particular sound effect. I find it very (laughs) jarring and annoying, Um, but uh, this is a longstanding pet peeve of mine. Pepper shakers in restaurants, pepper used to be very finely ground. It was almost a powder and it would just pour out of the holes in pepper shakers. But we've gone for a coarser grind in pepper over the last 20 years. And so you turn the pepper shaker over, nothing comes out or what can come out comes out. And they keep refilling it until it's only filled with what won't come out. They haven't managed to make the holes in pepper shakers in restaurants any bigger. So the pepper actually comes out. People stare at me because I'm either shaking a pepper grinder for 30 minutes over my omelet or I unscrew the top of it and pour the pepper across my food. It's very Seinfeldian, this particular ground goat, but it's very annoying and I'd like
0: something done about it. What do you think of the huge, ostentatious, large pepper mills that they bring by and ask you if you want fresh ground pepper? My dad always says there's an inverse proportion to the quality of the restaurant and the size of the pepper. grinder
1: i agree with your dad but what i find annoying about it is i like a lot of pepper that person either has to hand over the pepper grinder and let me do it myself for 10 minutes or they're going to get really annoyed standing next to the table because they'll say tell me when you when that's enough and i just look at them because it's never enough pepper i like a lot of
0: pepper all right well speaking of pepper jamie like an avalanche coming down a mountain what do you have to grind our gears
2: Uh, we are on the cusp of 2023 if you are still wearing a mask in your social media profile photo, please take it off. Show us your punem and stop acting like a sociopath, okay? Take the mask off. It's time. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Succinct and well said. For my goat grinder, this is a track called Fire in a Brooklyn Theater. It is from the film Come See the Paradise a passionate romance between an Irish-American man and a Japanese-American woman. This film didn't go much of anywhere, but the song lives on. It was used in so many trailers in the late 90s, A Few Good Men, Clear and Present Danger, Patriot Games, Some of All Fears. And I bring up fire in a Brooklyn theater because I bring you to two days ago, two young boys are about to see Avatar. When they get out of the movie, they will be two older boys. And they're blocking the theater is four or five fire trucks, they tell me, and fire officials telling them not to go in. So they listen as good young boys should, and they do not go into that theater. They go to another theater in Brooklyn that was not on fire or currently experiencing a fire activity. This is all fine. My Goat Grinder is not about fires in Brooklyn theaters. It's about what happens when you call Fandango afterwards to ask for a refund Because your theater was, if not on fire, at least experiencing a fire-related activity. And their menu says, if the movie's already started, we're not giving you a refund. So then you get on the phone and a guy named uh, Igor helps you, calls the theater, tries to ascertain, was there a fire? The theater said, yeah, there was a fire alarm and some fire trucks, but people could still get in. They, Igor, then deny you the refund, but say they will talk to their manager. We are still waiting to see, and this is very dramatic. I'm glad the drama of the music is really adding to this point. We're still waiting to see if justice will be done with the Fandango refund. I would say it's not too crazy a request to get your money back if there is a fire or at least three to four fire trucks preventing you from getting into the theater. That would be that would be my complaint. Fandango, do the right thing. Don't further grind my. Gears.
1: Oh, Mike! Movie theater chains all over the country are going bankrupt. Just let them have
0: it. Well, I would accept, 3D, two 3D tickets for a Brooklyn uh, showing of Avatar, 398 dollars. What? So, Wait, hold no, on. it was it was like 47. Oh, okay, but still, it's still a, lot. a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot to waste on a on a movie that. Promised water, I guess, to counteract the fire, but did not deliver, at least at the 2.30 showing.
1: Free range kids, well, you got there, right? You're talking about your boys and they got to yes. go to the theater by themselves in Brooklyn.
0: That's great. Yes. Yes. And then navigate. And then they had to decide, do I, do I uh, jump the line and ignore the fire official? I say they did the right thing. Fandango is trying to enforce poor values. Well, that is it for the show and we are off until New Year and then we are restructuring things. 2022's episodes gave us data and insight about what works and what doesn't. I use Reddit discussions on the gist page, reviews on Apple Pods and emails to not even mad at peachfishprojects.com to figure out what you think we welcome and rely on your comments and opinions not even mad is a peach fish project the show is produced by ian scutto the coo of peach fish projects is michelle pesca the theme songs by max kerman content designed by big yellow taxi for all your graphic needs big yellow taxi advertising by libson's advertise cast dan's column and podcast and books can be found at savage.love that's it savage.love Jamie Kerchick is quoted in a New York Times story, an excellent story about a controversy over the naming of NASA's James Webb Telescope. And tune in to the gist where we'll talk to documentarians who chronicled the rescuing of a Peruvian ocelot.
1: Its claws are going to be ripped out, its teeth will be ripped out, um, or i will end up in a, you know, a really... Um, terrible zoo so if we take it and we give it our best shot is that going to be a better life for for this ocelot than the alternative
0: please subscribe to not even mad where you go to listen to podcasts and again thoughts about what you liked and didn't like from the 2022 season of not even mad that's not even mad at peachfishprojects.com until next time we're not necessarily saying we're right we're definitely not saying you're right but we are not even mad